This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, MD Advantage, Yukon Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you on this Saturday morning. Um, This is a a show I always look forward to, and that's because we have uh, our studio guest today is going to be Dr. Mary Gina Ratchford of the Ratchford Eye Center. Uh, She's been a partner on our program for many years, Um, and by way of full disclosure, She's my eye doctor and my entire family's eye doctor. And uh, she is an ophthalmologist, an MD, and she's going to be answering questions. And and we've got a lot of questions, uh, some of which just came up as we transferred into the studio regarding floaters, uh, which is a problem uh, for many people. This week, uh, I attended Grand Rounds, as I do every week over at Hartford HealthCare. It's the Yukon Grand Rounds, a combined Grand Rounds. And we had a great talk from Dr. James Grotta. Dr. Grotta is a neurologist at the University of Texas, Houston. And he was one of the pioneers in the mobile stroke unit. So let me explain. A mobile stroke unit is essentially a large ambulance with a CT scanner inside, a serotome, same one we use in Haiti. It's a portable CT scanner. And they have now had this project going on for several years and tracking it. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing because one thing we've learned about stroke is the sooner you intervene, the better the recovery, meaning you could avoid the weakness, inability to speak. What they've been able to do is really pioneer the idea of taking the time between the stroke occurring and getting the medication necessary, those clot-busting drugs we talk about, TPA. Used to be you had to do it within three hours. Now it's like four and a half hours. Well, these folks have gotten it down to minutes. And the way they've done that is by training paramedics who go out in these mobile stroke units. So when they believe it is a stroke, and say a paramedic's on the scene, they could call the mobile stroke unit, which will meet them somewhere. Now, they deal, this is Texas, right? So we're talking far away in terms of not only in a metropolitan area, but uh, so they'll go out and meet the ambulance, put them in the CT scanner, communicate with a neurologist via telemed who can read the scan, go over the clinical findings, and they could start the clot-busting drugs in that ambulance. So give the bolus dose, the initial dose, right there. Now, it's not just in Houston. So there are other cities that have done this. One of the things he presented was really that the city of Hartford is probably perfect for this. Why? Because we have a comprehensive stroke center at Hartford Hospital. We have a dense population that's not overly dense, so it can be managed reasonably, and 
even our surrounding areas are not that far away. So our catchment area is not that far away. With that, uh, I have to think that there's somebody in Hartford thinking of doing this because that makes a difference. That means fewer patients needing extensive rehabilitation, never going back to work, never being able to speak again. Now, we've done this with other problems. For example, now, if a patient presents with uncontrolled epilepsy, paramedics can give intramuscular medication to stop the seizures. So, again, we're starting to mobilize what we do, get it out of the emergency room and start treating sooner. This is going to be something we really have to uh, watch, and I think it's going to be great for us here locally. This day in medicine, December 7th, 1905, Dr. Edward Zerm is a, a German surgeon, and he's an ophthalmologist and performs the first successful corneal transplant. It's an interesting story. It's, he did a full-thickness keratoplasty, uh, keratoplasty uh, of which we're going to ask Dr. Ratchford about. But the interesting story was it was a 45-year-old man who was working uh, in slacking lime. And he lost vision in both eyes. His corneas became white. At the same time, Dr. Zerm had an 11-year-old boy who had penetrating trauma to both eyes that he could not save, meaning uh, two pieces of metal went into the eye. He couldn't save the vision. So with the boy's parent's permission, he transplanted those corneas from that 11-year-old to the 45-year-old gentleman. Uh, One eye was successful, the other was not. But that was 1905, and it's something we hear about all the time now. So, you know, it's funny because we we talk about these things that have happened so long ago, and in this case, uh, really 109 years ago, uh, yet they're things we still do today, albeit they've become somewhat refined, but we're still doing them. Uh, Many of you have heard uh, on the news this week injuries related to mobile devices, specifically phone distraction injuries. Look, we've got a term for it now. This week in uh, JAMA Otorhinolaryngology, the ENT portion of that, and specifically head and neck surgery, presented the results of studies looking at ED records from 100 hospitals from 1998 to 2017. And it's amazing how much this has gone up. So in those 100 hospitals, they saw about 2,500 injuries. Now, if you extrapolate that to the whole country, we're talking about 76,000 injuries a year related to being distracted from your phone. And those injuries vary. I mean, you know, there's cuts and bruises. Um, There are people walking into poles, walking off cliffs, um, missing a curb and, and hurting themselves. So it's interesting because the data went up. It took a, the biggest jump in 2007, which was the year of the introduction of the iPhone. So we have this whole series of injuries and people just need to be more conscious and pay more attention when they're looking down at their phone. Uh, there's a new Alzheimer's drug. It's it's been around this this year. They've looked at this. This is a monoclonal antibody called aducumab, A-D-U-C-U-M-A-B. 
uh, aducanab. So anyhow, this drug was tried and was found to be unsuccessful in treating Alzheimer's disease. When they went back and, and restudied the drug, they found that if you doubled the dose, the problem they felt was, the pharmaceutical company felt was, the dose wasn't in, was insufficient. So if you doubled the dose, they did see some, impre- some improvement. What's interesting about this is neurologists, my colleagues, are telling the FDA to be very cautious and probably not approve this drug at this time because the data coming in from the drug company is pretty shaky in the sense that there's not enough information. And that's what we do as physicians. We scrutinize this data, you know, just because they come out with something and albeit they have a a real interest in having this drug become successful. There are physicians out there saying who treat people with Alzheimer's disease on a regular basis saying, hold off. So we're going to follow this a little bit and see as we make progress in the treatment of uh, people with Alzheimer's disease. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest here in the studio, Dr. Mary Gina Ratchford. Uh, We're going to be talking about ophthalmology. The phone number's here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You can also reach me by email while we're on the show at info at alessimd.com. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and uh, today my guest here in the studio is Dr. Mary Gina Ratchford. Dr. Ratchford is... uh, the principal at the Ratchford Eye Center, uh, 1166 Farmington Avenue in Berlin, Connecticut. Mary Gina, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's it's great to just chat with you, and we've been talking so much about eye problems. But you're an ophthalmologist, and I know we do this a lot, but can you explain to our listeners what an ophthalmologist is, specifically in relation to an optometrist and optician. Of course, sure. Yeah, it can definitely be uh, confusing. So so I am an ophthalmologist, um, and my training involved, you know, four years of undergraduate college and then four years of medical school. And in medical school, you know, you're exposed to all the different um, subspecialties of medicine. But within that, um, I focused in the treatment medical and surgical treatment of eye disease. So after med school, there is another four to five years of training to learn about the diseases of the eye that involve not only measuring uh, the the correction of the eye in terms of glasses and contacts, but actually treating both medical and surgical diseases of the eye. Um, There are other eye care providers uh, within the eye world and I'm sure you all um, have heard of uh, optometrists. They are also eye care providers. They do have uh, college and years of training, but their training really focuses on uh, measuring one for glasses, contact lenses, and treating uh, some minor medical conditions of the eye. Uh, the opticians are the ones that are trained to help make and measure you for a pair of glasses. Um, there are a lot of overlaps in terms of uh, those uh, designations, but but that's generally uh, the 
that this that that's the, the general principles. Um, I've been excited to get to this topic. So you just came back from the Dominican Republic, where you went on a mission trip. I did, and. and as always, it's our children that drag us there. Right? I mean, <laughs> in 2008, <laughs> my daughter Stephanie, who was my guest last week, you know, dragged me to Haiti. Okay, so your daughter drags you to the Dominican Republic. What right, was that like? Did. Yeah. Um, well, my daughter's a senior in high school, and her school does a service trip every year to the Dominican Republic. And uh, they've been this is their tenth year doing it, so it's really been a success. Uh, they do partner with a couple other of the high schools in Hartford, but but essentially they've gotten a relationship with a mission there, and they go down there every year to build a new home for. Uh, people that work on a bate. A bate is um, like a small area that the workers that really harvest the sugarcane fields, they live. And the Haitians. The, uh, it's, it's a combination of Haitians and Dominicans, right. but primarily Haitians. And the conditions, and you can imagine, are just uh, very, very primitive. Um, there's a dirt floor, you know, corrugated tin. And this is an area where there's families that live there. There's women and children and as the men go work in the fields. So um, we go every year to build a home for these families. So it's, you know, taking down the, the, the tin home and putting something that's at least hurricane resistance, concrete, a floor, a roof, um, and we can do this in about a week. So we raise all the money to buy the materials. There's probably 30 students that go down, and that's our mission for the week. Now, over the 10 years, that has expanded to doing um, a med clinic. So we do bring medicines down there, and we set up really a makeshift medical clinic, plastic chairs, a stethoscope, a blood pressure cuff, an interpreter, and we try to do what we can for, for patients given the, the medicines that we bring. Um, but since over the years, there have been some doctors who come and volunteer for their children, um, they do try to use our services. So I was pulled in uh, to the hospital in La Ramana to do some uh, cataract surgery for uh, the folks there. It's interesting because when people hear Dominican Republic, they think of all the resorts. Exactly. And, and don't understand the other side of the country. Uh, that you've really gotten a flavor for. Right, right. And, uh, you know, it's uh, most of the, you know, the, the resorts are kind of in the, the northwest corner or the northeast corner, I'm sorry. So we were about two hours outside of Santo Domingo. But once you get outside the city, it's really mostly sugarcane fields. And, you know, the, there's extremely, extremely poor areas without any access to, you know, food, water, and medical care. Um and it's interesting because the a lot of the people that retreated on the Bate were from Haiti. And even though we thought the conditions that these folks live in were really just horrible, they came from something worse. And that was really hard for these kids to see, especially seeing the little kids, you know, the yeah. little kids who don't have shoes working on, you know, don't have access to books, education, medicines. Were, were you impressed at the gratitude of people? You know, I was uh, – the, the kids who they're just they're so innocent that they would um, they would just come up and want a hug and that was enough. And I remember my daughter came with her backpack full of like stickers and lollipops, and the one little boy that she uh, you know who came up and hugged her wanted a pair of gloves so he could help. Like that just one moment really stuck in my mind. Like they they just want to kind of be part of the community. Um, but when we handed over the keys to the house to the two families that were going to live there, 
I mean, I started to cry. It was just such sure. a moment because it changes their life. Yeah. yeah, it really changes their life. Long lines waiting for medical care, right? That is. So I let the hospital know that I was able to do cataract surgery. And within a day, they had 50 patients on my schedule and they were turning people away. So, um, you know, the need is there. There really is. And, and it's frustrating because it, it takes you a long time to do anything. I mean, really, because you don't have the equipment you have here. You, we were talking a little bit, but you have to improvise. If you can't improvise, it's it's like being MacGyver in Absolutely. a medical clinic. Right? Absolutely. You're trying to improvise and do as much as you can, but you feel like, oh my gosh, I mean, I could have helped so many more people. Right, right. I mean, even in the simple things you take for granted, for example, like anesthesia. So when we do anesthesia in the eye, there's basically two ways we can do it. We can do a block with a needle, so we inject medicine behind the eye, or we can put uh, anesthetic in the eye. So anesthetic in the eye requires non-preserved medicines. It's got to be sort of a certain pH. There's a small gauge needle that we use to anesthetize the eye. I didn't have access to either one of those things. So I'm like, okay, what can I do that's safe, that's effective? Um, And the tools, you know, if you don't have uh, the certain specific tool to do it, you you can manipulate what you have. Um, there's not a lot of room for error because you don't have the way to, you know, kind of make a mistake if you drop the lens or you, uh, you know, you've you've got uh, a bad incision. So um, it is. It's it, it. It actually was. I had to use more of my creative skills to operate right. there, uh, not just my, you know, wrote what I do every single day, you know, 50 times a day. So um, it is a little bit of a challenge in that regard. No, um, it's but, exciting. But they, you know, even though the first day when the patients took off their patch, you know, here in the U.S., you know, they're likely to be 2020. But even if they can see the eye chart, they're grateful. So sure. um, it's, uh, it is a, it's a, it really changes your perspective on, on, the, the things that we actually have here and it makes you appreciate things. It's yeah. great. It's it's absolutely great to hear that you did that. Yeah. And, and I always encourage more physicians to go out and do that. And they come back and appreciate um, their life here, but their practice here as well. We're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Mary Gina Ratchford. We're talking about ophthalmology and diseases of the eye. Uh, we're 860-522-9842 and one 800 966 9842. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be here with Dr. Mary Gina Ratchford. Dr. Ratchford is from the Ratchford Eye Center, as you may all know. She's been a partner of our program early on and uh, been consistent with doing that and supporting uh, all the information we get out there. Mary Jean, uh, at the beginning of the show, we talked a little bit about corneal transplant, the first corneal transplant being performed in 1905. Which is amazing, 1905, yes. Right. Um, Yeah, so, um, you know, the cornea, for those who um, may not know, is the clear window on the surface of the eye. And that's one of the first structures that the light hits before it focuses. And not only does it serve as a protective layer of the eye, it also has the ability to bend the light, to refract the light. And for that light to be perfectly refracted and for us to have clear vision, that cornea has to be crystal clear. Um, We can change the shape of the cornea with things like LASIK and PRK, which people do sometimes to get out of glasses. Um, But there can be diseases that affect that cornea as well. 
Um, trauma is a big thing that can, uh, a big reason why people may not have clear corneas. You can get viruses, things like the herpes virus can affect it after shingles or herpes simplex. Um, and there are actual inherent diseases that affect the cornea, something called Fuchs dystrophy, which affects the inner layer of the cells called the endothelial layer. Um, so if if the 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 major part of the corneal tissue becomes damaged for one reason or another, then we have ways to correct it. In the past, we would do, um, and I say in the past because there are some new refinements of the surgery, as you kind of alluded to, um, but for things like trauma, for example, if you've got a penetrating injury through the cornea, we do have treatment to fix it that by taking out that diseased cornea as one total piece of tissue and replacing it with um, a donor cornea for someone who has donated their tissue. And that's really something for all of us to think about, you know, were you to pass someday, do you want to donate part of your, your organs? But corneal transplants, uh, if you wanted to donate your cornea, that really can help someone see. Um, so we can harvest a cornea from somebody and basically just sew it on where the old cornea was. Um, it's not something that has to be matched like a kidney transplant or a, a liver transplant, just because this is an immunologically protected area. There's right. no blood vessels in the area. So um, one person can donate to another. Now for something specific like Fuchs dystrophy, Fuchs dystrophy is one layer of the cornea that becomes damaged. That's the inner layer. And we can actually now replace just certain layers of the cornea as a way to help someone see better. Um, and that's some of the newer innovations in corneal surgery. Aren't vitamin deficiencies also associated with corneal disease? Yeah, vitamin A deficiency. Vitamin A deficiency. I saw my first case of that actually in Haiti in a child. Yes, absolutely. Who had, uh, a deficiency. Uh, when we look at corneal transplant, actually corneal donors, mm -hmm. is it my understanding it's not age-related? So even though you're elderly, you could still donate cornea? You can. Um, and there are certain, the eye, what the eye bank will do is when they, they harvest the corneas, they will look for you know certain qualities. They do test it for uh, diseases, sure. and viruses, infection. But as long as the tissue is clear, um, then yes, it, it can be used. Because I hear else. this all the time, right? Elderly people always say, well, who wants my organs? Why should I be an organ donor? And honestly, when we always say organ and tissue donor, right. because in this case, you could be 93. And if your cornea is healthy, you can help a young person see. Absolutely. And there are, you know, either there's scleral tissue that we use. So there are other parts of the eye that we can use and harvest for patch grafts and those sorts of things. So, um, I mean, if your cornea is cloudy just from age, it may not be a suitable oh, one, but, sure. but that doesn't necessarily mean that someone can't benefit from other parts. Uh, we had a question about floaters mm. <laughs> and the annoying nature of floaters. Can you talk a little bit about what is a floater? I mean, there are very few terms in medicine that are so specific. When right, you hear right. the word floater, it's like everybody knows what you're talking about. Right. But it can is, you let them know where that comes sure. from? Sure. It is a specific and it is kind of generic as well. Right. Yeah. So um, when we look at the eye, you know, we talked about the cornea focusing light, but the light has to penetrate through the body of the eye to the retina, which is the wallpaper of the eye. And what fills the bulk of the eye is this gel. It's called vitreous gel. And when we're born, that gel is the consistency of a raw egg white. So you can imagine that it's stretchy, but you can see through it. Now, over time, that gel begins to change. The proteins um, 
and the gel itself become more liquid. And what gives that structure are these protein strands. And so over time, as the gel becomes more liquid, those protein strands become more mobile, and they do become something that you can see. Most times in 30s, 40s, 50s, are when, when this process really comes to the point where people are aware of it. Now, the main uh, problem that we worry about with the presence of floaters is a tear in the retina because as that vitreous ages, it's sticky and it's firmly attached to certain parts of the eye. But as that vitreous sort of collapses, it can actually pull and tear the retina. And if you have a tear in the retina, that's something that needs urgent treatment or you could lose your eyesight. So it's important to differentiate just garden variety floaters that are just this normal aging process versus floaters which can be an indicator of disease. So if these sudden onset of floaters are associated with a lot of flashes of light, the flashes of light indicate that the retina is stressed, it's being pulled on. Um, and so for someone who has a lot of flashes of light followed by a lot of new onset floaters, that should you know, be a a call to your eye care provider for a dilated retinal exam so we can make sure that there's not a tear in the retina. The other sort of category that can indicate floaters um, is a hemorrhage. So if you're a diabetic, for example, um, diabetes in the eye can present as a bleed in the eye, which will also be uh, seen as of onset of new floaters. And I see it with people who have had head injury. Head injuries are the same thing. So right. the jarring of the gel can also be uh, be the onset of floaters. So um, floaters look like sometimes little corpuscles, little discs. Some people describe them as sort of worms or looking like little parasites because that is kind of the shape of the, the protein. And they can be more visible on a bright day, blue sky, snow, where there's contrast. Um, most of the floaters will eventually sort of go down out of your visual axis with gra- you know just with time and by the force of gravity um and what i tell my patients when i know they're not a sign of a disease your brain will learn to filter them out like if you're talking to somebody and the music's on in the background you can sort of filter out that music sure. you essentially your brain can essentially do that with the floaters as well you can uh, sort of learn to focus on what you're looking at and and not really pay attention to the distractions so as much as people say well they come and go it's really might might be just their brain adapting to them. That is true. Yeah. Okay. Now, for very visually significant floaters, there are some um, procedures that we can do. Uh, some retinal doctors will recommend a vitrectomy for someone who has visually significant floaters, where they put a probe in the eye and they basically, you know, kind of suck out that vitreous gel. That can be uh, associated with. There's always a risk of any kind of procedure sure. that we do. So we really have to weigh the risks of the procedure versus the benefits that you would get visually. So every once in a while, if I've got somebody with, you know, very, very dense floaters, I will refer them to the retina doctors for that, potentially that procedure. We're chatting with Dr. Mary Gina Ranchford today. We're talking about eye diseases. We're going to take a short break and then we're going to come back and talk a little bit about cataracts. And the reason is it's such a common problem as we get older. And I'd like our listeners to be aware of Kind of the early signs and symptoms. When do you need to get to your ophthalmologist and start getting things fixed? Um, I hear this all the time with people having difficulty driving at night uh, and things such as that. So we're going to talk about some of the early signs and symptoms of cataracts as well as what's new in the field of ophthalmology. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. 
We're back on Healthy Rounds in our last segment with Dr. Mary Gina Ratchford. And uh, we have a caller. We have uh, Ken from Bristol. Ken, you're on the phone. You're on the line. Hi. How you doing, Doc? Pretty good. What can we do for you? Um, basically, I suffer, I'm, an, I'm a retired Hartford cop. In 1985, I suffered uh, trauma in the eyes, severe. I was jumped by three, 13 members of a street gang. And my eyes were so hemorrhaged, you couldn't even see the pupil. It was just blood. It took me a long time to recover from that. And when I thought I was recovered, I developed chronic eye, uh, dry eye syndrome. I put in a workman's cop case, and the city denied it, saying I had a rheumatoid arthritis factor in my blood that could also cause dry eye. Well, that was 1985 when I was, say, 28. I'm 66 now with no sign of rheumatoid arthritis. So can you explain what they try to do to me and what I might do now? Okay. Uh, so let's let's back up a little bit. So it sounds like he was attacked and had blood in his eye, almost like a hyphema. Okay. Right? Yep. Um, so why are they saying that this is related to rheumatoid arthritis? Is that, that They're trying to say that your uh, your visual problem is related to rheumatoid? Yeah, what they did was they drew blood, okay, yeah. and uh, they found a factor, some distant factor, whatever it is. Rheumatoid factor. That said, this might cause dry eye. It might, not that it does. So I've been denied workman's cop for that very reason. So dry eyes are his persistent symptom. And oh, the question bad. is, it feels, it feels like there's a ton of gravel in my eyes every day. Right. So um, sometimes when uh, you have trauma, it can not only injure the tissues, but can also reveal some underlying issues. Sure. Um, you know, with inflammation that may be persistent, it may be not something that you are aware of. But dry eye is one of those more pervasive conditions that can happen to people just with you know, environmental irritants with age. Uh, but there are certain more severe cases of dry eye that can be related to underlying inflammatory conditions. Um, we specifically look for something called Sjogren's syndrome, which is along the autoimmune spectrum that can uh, be caused by inflammation of the lacrimal gland, which is the gland that produces fluid. So um, we don't always directly link trauma to a dry eye specifically unless there was injuries to that tissue, but the experience of the trauma can reveal some anti-inflammatory, can reveal some autoimmune or other inflammatory conditions. Okay, if I can say one last thing. Sure. Of course, yep. I had perfect vision with absolutely no problems until that very moment. That was the onset of all this problem I'm suffering and have suffered since 1985. Yeah, so I think you're bringing up a good yeah. point. I mean, yeah. the big point is, one, you had blood in both eyes. If they were hyphemas, that's going to affect your vision. Of course, yep. But it's probably not going to cause the dry eye, Ken. Um, I think that's what we're getting to. But there's no question that you had visual trauma and, first of all, deserve something for that. Um, and uh, I just also want to thank you for serving as a police officer here um, and protecting us. Um, thank you for your time and your service. Hey, hey thanks, thanks thank for your you. comments. I all guess right. I'll, have to de- I'll have to pursue this the best way I can. I think yeah, you do. Absolutely. Sounds yep. good. Uh, let's go to cataracts. Sure. It's so common. Is it becoming more common or we're just finding it more now that we're getting older? (laughs) Um, So cataracts are a 
very common condition that each one of us will develop over our lifetime, assuming that we live long enough. And what it represents is the natural clouding of the lens of the eye. Um, it can happen quickly, more often. It can happen sort of slowly, starting in your 50s, 60s, and 70s. What I have found, however, is that maybe relative to our parents and grandparents, we are so much more visually active these days with our computer screens, with our phones, with our activities. So we demand better vision. Um, and I think that uh, living in the kind of society that we do, we, we want you know things to be perfect. So I, I find that the age of the people that we're operating on uh, it is trending downward um, as opposed to maybe 10 or 15 years ago where our age group was, was less. Um, so one of the one of the challenges that we have in cataract surgery is we know we can safely remove the lens, but it's the replacement lens where we have an opportunity to give people even better vision. Uh, I think a lot of people struggle with wanting not to wear glasses. And as we get up into our 40s, you know, we're wearing glasses for near. But cataract surgery does give us the opportunity to not only correct distance, but near vision as well. And, and the technology and industry is trying to give us better products to give to our patients so that perhaps after a cataract operation, when we take out the cloudy lens, not only can we give you better vision because the cataract is out of the way, but also maybe give you some more independence from glasses. And, and that's that's kind of the holy grail, you know, if we can really sure. find a, a, a good way to get people out of glasses altogether, including distance and near, um, that would really be great. Now, some people never get cataracts, right? You know, I um, I think I just the other day I had a patient in my chair who was 93. Okay. Yeah. She had 20-30 vision. She was able to do everything she wanted to, lived pretty independently. You know, look in her eyes. She has some cloudiness of the lens of her eye, so technically she has the cataract, but it hasn't reached the point where she was bothered. Yeah, um, she's not functionally impaired. Right. I also had a 47-year-old in my chair who was a diabetic who, you know, couldn't see because of other medical issues. So, right. um, so I think everybody will develop. It's just really where you know, where that cataract begins to interfere with your activities of daily living. And then, again, talk about risks and benefits. You know, are the risks of the surgery going to outweigh the, the benefits? So um, well, I hear a lot of times people complaining that they can't drive at night. Right, right. Because so, of the cataracts. That is true. So one of the earliest stages of cataracts is um, is nighttime driving. It's glare. So when the light en enters that cataract, it doesn't get focused sharply, it scatters. And at night when your pupil's a little bit more dilated, that can be a time where, you know, you do have more scatter. Now, having said that, just age will also affect your ability to see at night. The receptors age a little bit. The cornea becomes a little bit cloudy. That light doesn't focus as sharply as it should. So I think nighttime in general is going to be more difficult as you get older, but the overlying cataract can certainly play a role. And, and often when we take out the cataracts, um, nighttime vision will be better. What do our listeners need to know? What's the future in ophthalmology? What are they going to start hearing about? Yeah, so um, I think that there's going to be a lot of diseases that we treat with um, stem cells and with genetic therapy. You know, if we can identify diseases earlier and be able to, you know, modify the disease process, not just give you treatment sure. once it's there. I think, you know, there's a lot that we hear about with those um you know, with, with those kinds of diseases, you know, we would love to be able to halt somebody with macular degeneration in their 50s rather than give them injections when they're 80. So I think there's going to be some role for that. I think 
in the more near future, there's going to be different ways that we deliver drugs. For example, if you have glaucoma, um, you know, we put you on a regimen of eye drops. It's a daily uh, habit that you have to get into. Even if it's a one a day drop or a drop that you take twice a day, um, it can still be fraught with, you know, just issues. Remembering the drop, sometimes drops give irritation. Um, there can be costly, you know, the insurance company switches the sure. generic. Um, so if we can inject something into the eye, put a contact lens in the eye, give a punctal plug that will give you more sustained delivery over a six-month period, you know, we might be able to get better control of the disease. Um, so I think those are sort of the near future. As far as the um, cataract surgery goes, I think one day we're going to be able to implant a lens that will be able to correct distance in the ear that we alter the power with a laser. So we put this um, sort of substrate in your eye, and then we can laser it once it's in your eye to be able to give you that refractive correction that you need. And and change that refractive correction as you age? Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's... Um, that's, you know, it's been on our radar for a been, while. People must be working on that, They are, right? yeah. There's there's folks working on it. Um, there's a very, I forget her name, but she's a, a physicist that's working on it um, in one of the eye labs wow. uh, down south. So that's I great. think that it's just materials, it's refractive, it's, you know, but I think if we can you know, offer that to people someday, that's going to be That is so be great. great. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for spending time. Thank so Thanks much. for supporting well, the program. Now that we're in our fourteenth year, um, this is—it's been great to be with Dr. Ratchford. As a reminder, the phone number is eight six zero eight two nine eight nine three nine for the Ratchford Eye Center. Thanks again, Mary. Great. Gina. Thank you. Always enjoy our conversations and happy holidays. Thank you. Thank you. Um, next up on WTIC's Garden Talk with Len. Uh, many thanks to our studio producer, Mike Oakle, has been on the board, and Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Healthy Rounds, you can also get us on our podcast, downloaded free on iTunes. Please remember to help save lives by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Do that today by going to registerme.org. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, MD Advantage, UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.